0: The sermon text this morning is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith.
1: When when the kids were younger, Carol and I would always... uh, when the kids were younger and cash was uh, not around, we would go antiquing and just looking through shops and try to enjoy these antiques and trying to find one. We always loved finding the, that, that kind of unique gem that, um, that was a beautiful piece, but you couldn't tell. You had to have eyes to see beneath the layers of what was put upon the, the dresser or the table. And, and periodically we'd find that, that beautiful Uh, table, uh, that once all the layers were scraped off, varnish was stripped, paint was removed, whatever was on it, that you'd see this, the beauty of the wood, the beauty of how God designed it. Well, you know, here we're finishing up these first two chapters. We're into chapter three in Galatians. And if if you've been here, you've seen that over the past two chapters, Paul's really been doing two things. He's been defending his gospel that he preached. He's been in a posture of defense, defending this gospel. It's just like the apostles in Jerusalem. It's the same gospel. I received it in a different way at a different time, but it's the same saving gospel. And he's, he's been defending his apostleship as well. You know, I'm, I'm the same type of apostle. He says in Corinthians, I was untimely born. He came into being an apostle called of God differently than the original 12, uh, but, but he's an apostle none the same as we saw him kind of rebuke Peter publicly. Well, now we move to chapter 3, and Paul turns his focus back on the Galatians. He is concerned. Uh, They're beginning to drift. Uh, They're beginning to listen to these false teachers that were adding layers on the gospel. They were explaining that the gospel is important, but so are these other things to be found right with God and to be included in God's people. And so he moves toward them with a rebuke, or let's just call this the second theological smackdown is what he does. He rebuked Peter, and now he's going after these Galatians. He's he's literally saying to them, oh foolish, this explains why he says, oh foolish Galatians, oh foolish Galatians. He is concerned that they are distorting the gospel, that what they once believed, Christ, crucified, is now being lost and layered over. The cross is being layered over. And so he wants to break this spell. He wants to wake them up. And he wants to present before them again who Christ is. Specifically, he was crucified for our sins. That's what he's holding before the people. And he's going to prove to them that that is all you need to be right with God. You don't need all these other works, acts. You don't need those. You just need Christ and him crucified. And he gives two arguments. You're going to see that he says, you have the spirit. The spirit of God is proof to you that you have been made right with God. You're going to see that in verses 2 through 5. And the second argument is the word of God in 6 to 9. Look at the word of God. The word of God proves that it is through faith alone and not through faith and other things. So the first thing we're going to do is look at verse 1, which is that kind of that, that smackdown in terms of reminding them, waking them up, and then uh, and reminding them that, in fact, you have been rightly related to God through faith. So look with me at verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, if you look at the various translations, it's kind of humorous how it is translated. So some of them are, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you can't be so idiotic. That's a J.B. Phillips. Another is, you stupid Galatians. Another is, who has cast a spell of you? So if you're a little slow today, this would be a rebuke. That's what he's doing. He is rebuking them. And, and for their foolishness, for beginning to add to the gospel, distorting the gospel, they're, they're coming under this layered gospel. So, you know, if you go into a circus and you stand before those circus mirrors, if you're tall and thin, you become short and wide, they're changing the gospel. It is not what it is. They're making it something different. Now, now let me be clear here. These false teachers that were coming in, they did preach... Christ and him crucified they did you got to believe in Christ and him crucified at the same time they added other markers You need to be baptized you need to be um, Circumcised you need to be uh, eating according to the food laws you need to be Practicing keeping the Sabbath holy these things were fine as we've talked about but but for many they become part and parcel of faith in Christ Uh, They're layering things on. Now, now we we do the same thing uh, in churches today. We'll say you have to believe in Christ, but you should vote this way. I mean, if you really believe in Christ, you're going to vote in this way. You're going to hold these immigration policies. You're going to think this way about racial issues. And we begin to slowly add those things on. Uh, Some churches will add to their very statement of faith that you can't drink alcohol or that you have to have a second blessing to be. In other words, what we're doing is we're taking the gospel. Yeah, it's wonderful and everything. But then we're putting these other things, and these other things begin to divide and kind of include or or disinclude people from the covenant community. And Paul's objecting to this. He's saying, no. Look what he says again. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul's saying, listen, listen. I publicly declared him to you. I came into these churches in Galatia, and I publicly proclaimed that Christ was crucified for your sins. I set him before your eyes. I think what that means is you saw it vividly. You saw it clearly. I mean, you saw that there was no other way to be reconciled to God, to be made right with God, other than through faith in a Savior, a Messiah who has been crucified. By necessity, Jesus had to bear our sins. And we're going to see this in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. He didn't just bear the sins of men and women. He bore the curse of God for those sins. The very curse that was back in Genesis 3, he bore that so that we might be reconciled and drawn back into God. There's no other way. And they saw it. They got it. They saw that was all we need. Now, that is a lot to need. But that's all we need that he did do. And they believed it. They trusted in it. So, William Perkins was a a scholar and a Puritan back in the uh, 16th century. And he said these words He says, We are mind and meditation to consider Christ crucified. And first, we are to believe that he was crucified for us. This being done, we must go further. And as it were, spread ourselves on the cross of Christ, believing and withal beholding ourselves crucified with him. This is essential. Uh, to be right with God, at least in the historic Christian faith, it's to believe that Christ had to, by necessity, be crucified, bearing our sins, our guilt, our shame, and the judgment of God to make us right with God. That is all we need, and that's all we need. Uh, Do you believe in this so exclusively? Uh, Do you see that to trust in Christ alone makes peace with God? Uh, Do you see that adding anything, even dividing relationships because they're not with you in terms of your political or cultural view, do you see that that is rendering the cross unnecessary? That, that, That the way Paul preached Christ crucified was anything added to that would subtract from it. There's no building on it. In the verse right before chapter 3, verse 1, he says that if righteousness were gained through the law, then Christ will have died for no purpose. So if you think that my sacrifice or my ministry or my involvement in the church or, or my good deeds Those are good and they're right, and we'll talk about those in chapter five. But if you see those as kind of adding to the work, making it stronger, then you're distorting the gospel. It's legalism. Legalism, we we can always identify legalism in our heart by either self-righteousness or judgmentalism. Uh, so self righteousness. If if you if you look at other Christians and they kind of go down a couple rungs on the ladder because they're not like you in these secondary issues, that would be a mark of legalism. Or if if you look at what you do and you feel kind of a little better and a little stronger with God because of of the things that you're doing, then that would be another form of legalism. Now last week I just referred to it, but I want to read you the passage in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they go into the temple together. He says these words. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, Or even the tax collector, you you can fill in whatever you want. Whoever the people that you feel are most odious, you can fill those in. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, what we often look at in the parables, we forget that before the majority of parables, Jesus always gives the context. You know, the, 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 the gospel writers always record what prompts the parable. And Luke does for us. He says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he's going right after. He's showing that legalism was alive and well. People trust in their deeds. People that are religious trust in their deeds. So this is the inscription off of a tombstone in the first century in Judea. This was found by archaeologists. And it goes like this. Here lies Regina. She will live again, return to the light again, for she can hope that she will rise to life promised as a real assurance to the worthy and pious in that she has deserved to possess an abode in the hallowed land. This your piety, piety means your morality, your goodness, this your piety has assured you that your chaste life and that your love for your people and that your observance of the law and your devotion to wedlock and the glory of which was dear to you. For all these deeds, your hope in the future is assured. It's easy to be quite religious and to begin trusting in all that God has done for you for his own purposes. In fact, uh, Martin Luther says that as soon as law is established, the gospel is abolished. Or John Stott says it this way. He says, The law requires human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us to obey. The gospel promises and bids us to believe. These are not two aspects of the same thing. So where do you stand with this? I mean, this is just verse 1. Paul's saying, listen, I've got to break the spell of us. Are we going to commit ourselves wholly to Christ and him crucified that is completely, fully sufficient for all the work that has to be done to bring us to God. You may be knee-deep in sin. He dies for sinners. God demonstrates his love for us in this. But your faith has to be anchored to Christ and him crucified, not Christ and him crucified, and your views on whatever issue you have. We often divide along these lines or we add things that are good and right. But you do you see the exclusionary place that Christ ought to have? Does he have that in your life? This is how you become a Christian. I mean, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're thinking, this is how it becomes. that You look at your life and you see, this is who I am. In the raw, this is who I am. And that's the one I need. And to believe in him, is to trust in him. There's a huge difference between believing where you give mental assent to something as, yeah, that's objectively probably true. But there's something different to trust in it, to rest your life in it. You know you trust in it because you're not trying to add works to it. You're not trying to add your good deeds. I want you to walk in right living, but it doesn't break the veil that Christ and him crucified has done. So what he was saying to these Galatians is, listen, when I came and preached, this is what you believed. Now teachers have come in after me. They've encouraged you to do all these other righteous things, and they've told you that they're essential for you to be right with God and right with each other. If you want to become part of the people of God, you've got to do faith in Christ, but you've got to do these other things as well. And so what Paul's saying is, don't fall for that. And I'm telling you, don't fall for that. In other words, remember that it's faith in Christ, him crucified, alone. And here's two arguments that Paul gives. The first is this. He says, you've already gotten the Spirit. The Spirit of God has already moved among you. That is evidence that you are rightly related to God. Remember, the Spirit of God doesn't come upon anybody that is not saved. Uh, The the person who's rightly related to God is, is marked by the Spirit. That's the promise of the Old Testament that you belong to God, you're a child of God, you're part of the new age, if you have the Spirit. So look at what he says, look with me at verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? So he's saying to them, go back to your own experience, you, you, you know your own life. Now he assumes they have the Spirit, he assumes it. He says, did you receive it by this way or that way? They already have it. So he says, did you receive it by works of the law? Did you get the spirit when you were circumcised? Did you get the spirit when you maintained the food laws? Did you get the spirit when you kept the Sabbath? Well, the obvious answer is no, of course we didn't. We know we didn't. They hadn't been circumcised. They weren't circumcised. They weren't obeying the food laws. So Paul's kind of his rhetorical question is turning into a statement. He's saying, no, you received the Spirit by hearing and believing, hearing the Word of God with faith. You hear the gospel, and you believed in it. Listen, a lot of people hear the gospel. Don't sever that link. A lot of people hear the gospel. They like the gospel. It makes God seem nice. But there isn't a hearing and believing. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul makes the same connection. He says, having heard the gospel of truth and believing, he says, and believing Um, the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So it's hearing the word of truth and believing in the gospel of your salvation that you're sealed with the Spirit. So he's saying to them, I mean, the logic is undeniable. If you already have the Spirit, then why are you going back to finding confidence in these outward, external manifestations of religion? Why are you doing it? Why aren't you just resting in Christ? But then he goes on to his next argument. And not just you've already received the Spirit, you've grown in the Spirit. Look with me at verse 3. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul's just pounding them with arguments, saying, don't move from Christ. Don't add to Christ. He says, you began with the Spirit, so why do you now shift back to thinking that somehow circumcision or holding the right political view or practicing a certain daily devotional style, why do you think that's going to make you more secure with God? Christ and him crucified is all we need. There's really two ways you see here. Uh, all religions of the world go on the path of works. It's what you do to find peace with whatever deity there is. And, and a path of works always leads to slavery, burden. Um, it leads ultimately to death. Have I done enough? If I do that when I die, will it matter? And Will that take me out of the deity's favor? There's always the path of works, and there's the path of the Spirit. The path of the Spirit is marked by faith in Christ, which leads to adoption, forgiveness, and inheritance, and freedom. Freedom. Freedom from the law. Freedom from the burden of the law that I didn't do it right again. That's what it leads to. And he's saying, why are you going back there when you're already started on? You can't change horses in the middle of the stream in one old song You, you can't move from the life of the spirit to the life of the flesh you cause christ to have died for no purpose he gives another argument look with me at four he says did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain he's saying you've you've endured by the power of the spirit now we don't know in fact how these galatian churches were suffering there's some hints of it in chapter five but he said you endured you didn't give way You didn't turn aside from the gospel. The Spirit of God is evidenced in preserving you. So so why would you leave the Spirit now and go back to flesh? Or look in verse 5 about all that God had done. In verse 5 he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's saying, you've seen God work in you. Miracles have been done in these churches. Gifts have been given. And he's saying, did God do that stuff? by works of law, or by faith. They hadn't done any works of the law. So he's saying to them that you are, the evidence of the Spirit shows you that believing on Christ is all you have needed to be rightly reconciled to God. That's all you need. So, they drifted. That's what they did. They drifted from the gospel. You know, if you don't, if you don't put an anchor into the water with a boat or tie it to a pier, you don't have to be a sailor to realize you can't park a boat. It doesn't just stay there. It's always going to move. It's always going to drift. Currents and tides will move the boat along. They drifted. They drifted from the gospel. And notice that he's not chiding the leaders. He's not saying you elders should have done a better job. He's chiding the people, you foolish Galatians, that we are the ones that are to be mindful of, are we drifting from this gospel? Why do we drift in the first place? Why are you tempted to drift from this? Well, a lot of us, we just drift because we're distracted. We kind of take away from the gospel. Uh, We don't church. If we make it, we make it. Read the Bible. Yeah, I had a busy week. Fellowship with people. Well, You know, fellowship is messy. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we just want to avoid that. But we just kind of remove ourselves from the life of the people of God in whom dwells the Spirit of God. And we just begin to drift, or we can drift by adding things. We drift by setting up certain silos of who we're with. I mean, churches do this all the time. As I mentioned at the beginning, there's a silo of, again, political, cultural, racial, issues. We, 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 we drift because we begin to limit who we want to hang with, and, and we're layering on the gospel. We drift by misproportion. We take certain things. I had a spiritual experience. I spoke in tongues. I believe in six-day creation. You know Those things become so important to us that it begins to work in an exclusionary way with other people, and we begin to drift away from just a simple gospel, just that naked, all the layers removed, pure gospel. So, so we all have the tendency to drift. Every single one in here will. So how do, we, how do we stop the drift? Well, we need to preach the gospel to each other. You know, when Paul was in Corinth, he says, he says I resolved when I was with you to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. So he, Paul's saying, when I was with the church in Corinth, I would only center on the gospel. I would only center on Christ and him crucified. It didn't mean that he wouldn't teach other things. But that was central to him. Uh, Do we preach the gospel to one another? I mean, to the degree that you're engaged in in a small group or a Bible study, ongoing fellowship with covenant members of this church, uh, that is a way to help avoid the drift. Because it allows people to encourage you. It allows people to correct you when you go awry. You know, last week I asked you, is there anybody that you have invited into your life to bring correction to your life? it's necessary. You will drift without someone coming along and bringing some degree of admonishment to you. Not just admonishment and done in a gracious way, of course. Ad- encouragement as well. But admonishment is part of it. It's the part we don't like. But the way God, and what breaks my heart too is marriages in particular and close friendships among friends, God has designed those relationships to be able to bear the weight of one bringing correction to the other. And yet, as often the case, when it's that close, a husband has trouble bringing correction to a wife or a wife to a husband without the other one kind of bowing up or getting frustrated or oversensitive. And then that happens once and nobody wants to go there again. And yet it's cutting off a main path to stop the drift that we should be able to weigh in with each other and as members of this church. So we need to be able to preach the gospel to one another, both encouragingly and admonishingly. But also we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. You know, we have to seek God's spirit to fill us and, and dine on God's word. I know this is like first grade stuff, but that's all we need. The the Spirit is always associated with the Word in Scripture. The Spirit just doesn't operate on its side, giving these ecstatic experiences. Not the Spirit of the Bible. The Spirit of the Bible is always working in concert with His Word. So to not drift, to not fall prey to this layering on of the cross, it's to be in the Scriptures, to be praying, to be preaching the Gospel. So let me give you a couple simple examples here. So last week I was, preach, I was um, reading in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, going through the Bible reading plan. I, I do it once every two years. In other words, I read through the whole Bible every, every two years. And I found that that's easier for me because I'm not grinding through so many chapters, and I get behind, and then I gotta, I'm kind of a type A, and i got to read it all, and I don't remember anything I read. And so it allows me to go at a pace that's a little bit slower and more meditative. And I was able to read Nehemiah 9, And it was about when Nehemiah and Ezra, uh, they were preaching to the people after the building of the wall. And the people were convicted over the word. And they began to weep. And they began to confess their sins. And they began to acknowledge, God, we've departed from you. We've left you. And you've disciplined us rightly. But now we want to covenant with you. We love you. Forgive us. And i I. I found in my own soul kind of the same trajectory. I was thinking about my past and my sins and and both not just a hundred years ago, but my sins of last week and how often choose to go in the way of personal pleasure rather than than joyful obedience. And it led me to confess and it led me to thank God for his faithfulness to me, even though I haven't been faithful to him. And I kind of walk through it with him. That's how the spirit of God works and applies to your heart to keep you close to the gospel. Or the next day, I read in Psalm 90. In Psalm 90, there's a couple verses where it talks about the grass that sprouts today. It blooms in the morning. But by evening, it withers and fades. And I thought, that's me. I mean, I'm in the evening. I mean, we're starting to wither and fade. A- and And immediately became that, wow, life is really passing by. There's a lot more behind me than is in front of me. But then I went right back to the gospel and thought, No, no, no. Christ and him crucified has reconciled me to God. There is nothing I need to fear. Not one, he he has, I am owned by him. And the evidence of the spirit makes that clear to me by the conviction of sin. So do you have this experience with the spirit that can be evidence in your own life? Do you have the conviction of sin when you read the scriptures? Are you drawn to increasingly love Christ? Uh, Do you find yourself initiating repentance without being confronted over your sin? Uh, Do you you have increased desires for the word of God? Do you seek the spirit of God? Uh, This is evidence that lets us know, no, we have rightly believed Christ and him crucified. And then he's given us to his spirit. So what he's saying to these Galatians is simply this. Don't go the way of flesh. You have been saved by believing in faith. In faith you trust that Christ is crucified for your sins and you have evidence of the Spirit in your life. Do you have that evidence? Because if you don't think you do, then I think it's imperative to come to a brother or sister and ask, what do you see of the Spirit in me? And don't let this go. This is Paul's evidence that we rightly believe. Not that you've got your theological system airtight. That's not it. That's important. But the evidence of the Spirit proves that we belong to God, that we're children of God. And then secondly, he argues another evidence why these Galatians shouldn't go to the flesh because they're already believers is the the Old Testament, the Word of God. Look with me at verse 6. Paul's masterful in his... In his argumentative skills, uh, he says in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What Paul does is he says to these Galatian believers, listen, you want to go back and start following the law of Moses. Moses is the lawgiver in the Old Testament. That's great. You want to go back and follow the law of Moses. He says, I'll do one better. We'll go back behind Moses and we'll go to Abraham. Abraham's the father of faith. And Abraham, it says, was reckoned righteous. It says right there, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. So Abraham came to a place of right standing with God through faith in God. Now, what does that mean? Because a lot of people believe in God. He believed the promises of God. God had told him, You're going to have a son and you're going to have many, many, many children, but through your seed's going to come one that all the nations will be blessed. So he didn't just give. A promise to Abraham that he'd have a family. He'd have a family, all right, and it would be a family of nations, and these nations would receive the very blessings of God from one of those seeds, or as we're going to see in Galatians 3, seed. And he believed that God would do it. And by faith, Abraham was declared righteous, innocent, forgiven. That's incredible. Now, what's so masterful about this argument? Is that when God gave the promise to Abraham that he believed. It was hundreds of years before the law. There was no Mosaic law. Abraham wasn't even Jewish. Abraham didn't know anything about a temple. He didn't know anything about dietary laws. He didn't know anything about circumcision yet. That would come later. Abraham believed and was rightly related to God. So there's nothing you can do to add to it. Look at how he applies this to us in 7 and 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. This is really huge theology here. Paul is going all the way back to the Old Testament and saying to these Gentile Galatians who didn't know Abraham from a hole in the wall before he came preaching, he's saying to them, That you can be children of Abraham. You don't need to be circumcised to be a son of Abraham or a daughter. You don't need to be born of a Jewish mother. You don't need to practice Jewish religion. You don't have to become a Jew to be a son of Abraham. You have to believe like Abraham. Believing in the promises of God that Abraham believed in. The very same promises. That's why he said the gospel that we're talking about Christ was preached to Abraham. You're like, well, hold on, Jesus wasn't even around in Abraham's time. No, no, no. He preached the gospel to Abraham because he said to Abraham, a child will come forth to bless the nations, a servant, one who will suffer. Abraham didn't know all about the seed that would come forth from him to the degree that we do. But he knew that a servant would come to save and bless the nations. Do you realize what this means? This means that what relate what, what relates us to one another is faith. Faith in the same crucified Savior. It didn't, God doesn't have celebrities here. He doesn't have inner rings. He doesn't have certain pockets of special believers. We all are united in faith. But you also realize that this is why Christ has to go to the nations. You know, in 1996, the Southern Baptist Conference had this big initiative to preach the gospel to the Jewish people. And people were up in arms over it, people in and out of the church. People out of the church, of course, were saying proselytizing, it's, it's I don't know what they called it back then, probably, I don't know, race appropriation or something. But, but, But they criticized it. People even within the church criticized it. It's like they have their own way. They've got the law of Moses. They've got their own way. What he's saying is, no, they don't have the law of Moses. We're going to see in the back half of chapter 3, The law of Moses was only a little guide, a guardian, a tutor. Hey, guys, listen, you need this Christ, so I'm going to show you how to find him by crushing you under my weight. That's how I'm going to show you him, by crushing you. And what he's saying is, no, the nations need this Christ crucified. That's why we go overseas. That's why we spend the money that we do. That's why people, those that have been called by God, take on the cost and the burden of doing that because there is no other way. It's only through Christ and him crucified, not him coming to show you how to love people, but no, him dying for our sins. And do you also see the continuity of the Old and the New Testament? People think they were saved by the Old Testament, back sacrificial system. No, they weren't. The Old Testament saints were saved exactly like you and I are. They're exactly the same way. Abraham and all those who followed him, they looked forward. When will the servant come? When will the suffering Messiah come? Where will the child of God come? The one born of a virgin. When is he going to come to save us? And what are we doing? We're looking back and saying, well, he came and we believe in him. It's believing in the same promise. It's believing in the same grace of God. That has come manifest in the flesh, in the name of Jesus, who bore our sins on a tree. And do you see one other thing about this? Do you, can you rejoice with me that by believing, as Abraham believed, by believing in this crucifixion, we're open to the promises, the blessings, I should say, of Abraham? Abraham was given prom- promises, he was given blessings, like in verse 8 we're justified. So Gentiles now are justified. So Abraham was justified. And then fast forward a 1,000 years, those Gentile churches were justified. Fast forward a 1,000 years to you and me, by faith in Christ, we're justified. And to mean we're justified means that we're forgiven. We're right with God. You could drop dead right now from a heart attack in faith. You're right with God. If you're discouraged about your Christian faith and you just can't seem to get yourself and beat yourself out of a paper bag and you, you just can't seem to get any momentum, that's not where your trust is to rest. You can be happy because the merits of Christ are sufficient for you. You don't need to add anything to it. You don't need to bring anything to the party. Just come. That's all you've got to do. You don't have to furnish anything. Just come to the party. The older brother, he's outside. He thinks he needs to add to it. He's the one not in the party. So if you're discouraged, or maybe, maybe you're just in despair, you think your sins are so great, so beyond measure, and you've repeated them. In fact, you've enjoyed repeating them. And yet here he stands, Christ crucified for sinners such as you. You know, the Pharisee was saying, thank God I'm not like the adulterers and the extortionists and the tax collectors and all the wicked. They're the ones getting into the kingdom because they see their sin and they repent, even though he saves sinners. He saves those sinners who repent of their sins. But not just the... Blessings of justification, we also have the blessings of the Spirit of God. God has given to us a Spirit. Let me just read to you from Galatians chapter 3. We'll hit this in a couple of weeks. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, that's what I'm talking about, might come to the Gentiles, that's us, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. God has given to us His Spirit. So that's why we're convicted of sin. That's why our eyes are open to truth. That's why we, we find ourselves, even if we're knee deep in sin, we still wanna make it back to the Father. We know we need him. We have the Spirit of God. And, and then last thing I would say, the last blessing that we have from Abraham, uh, as we believe as he does, is that we will have a land. You know, Abraham was promised a land. It was the land of somewhat where Israel is today. But there's something more that was that promise. That that was a temporary promise. That was a temporary blessing. The promise of Abraham that comes to us through faith in a crucified Messiah is that we will have life after life after death. Let me explain this. You and I, all of us here, we're living. And if Christ tarries, all of us are going to die. So we'll die. There's life and there's death. And then there's life after death, which is, when we die, the person, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the body goes in the ground and the soul that that you that God has made knit together in his mouth, that goes up to God in glory and remains with God. That's not the final resting place. Heaven is not your final resting place. Heaven is a temporary abode. It, 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 it will it will be over. What happens is when Christ returns And he establishes his kingdom, it says the new heavens come down, the new Jerusalem comes down, and he makes a new heaven and a new earth. He renews these things so that our future is we have a life after life after death, and that we dwell in the land, the same land that he promised. You know, when we came out of Eden and wandered, they were going to a land, that land that was promised to Joshua and Judges that we all read about, that was a foretaste of a future Eden, of which is the new heavens and the new earth. And so, the promise to the person who believes in Christ crucified alone is going to receive that land. That's us. So, there is no other Savior. There is no other way. There's no other layering on the gospel. It's Christ and Him crucified, naked and all. That's what saves. There's no other way. There's no other Savior. So I was thinking about, um, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, The Silver Chair, one of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, there's a scene, I think it's in the second chapter, where Aslan, who's the Christ figure, is lion. He uh, is uh, there in the wood. Jill is one of the main characters. She's in this unknown forest. And she's dying of thirst. And she needs to drink the water. But she's terrified there's a lion there. And so she's hesitant. So she's trying to figure out, what do I do? And this is how the conversation ensues. Are you thirsty? Or excuse me. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion, Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step near. Do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. There is no other source of life for us other than Christ and him crucified. Nothing else, just that, that alone is what we need. And that's why when we come to a day, even like today when we gather together, but even in celebration of the supper, the supper is all about reminding you there is no other stream. There is no other one that you can turn to. There is no other one that you need to turn to. We're so quickly going to people and other forms of help and we don't run to the one who laid down his life, who loved us, and gave himself for us, it says in 2.20. When you look at the bread and you look at the cup, these are only elements that we're to look through. Charles Spurgeon says they're like glasses that you're to look through. They're spectacles by which you understand that when he was crucified, his body was broken under the weight of your sin and my sin, not his. And his blood was shed to establish a covenant between God and us that we needed this covenant to be made. So it's more than an act of remembrance. It's actually when you eat the bread and you drink the cup in faith, you're actually participating with it. Kind of akin to we have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So in other words, when you look at the bread, this is Christ crucified. It just, it it blows open a door of the blessings of God for you. Because you're believing in the same way that Abraham believed. So for those of you that are overwhelmed with your sin, there is forgiveness. For those that are overwhelmed with loneliness, there is adoption. For those that are overwhelmed and burdened, there's freedom. For those who are in fear of death, there's eternal life. All these are the blessings that we're called. When you see the bread and you look at the cup, these blessings have been granted to us through faith in Christ. I I would bid those of you to consider this if you have not seen Christ as crucified, as sufficient and alone, that you would put your faith, your trust, you'd lean on him. You wouldn't bring anything to the part. You Just bring yourself and your sin, and he saves. God will give you a spirit. He's evidenced it in the word. So let's take a moment now and just, just consider this before we eat the bread. The elders are going to come up in just a moment before you eat the bread and drink the cup. Consider your own soul before God. Quietly think upon all that you are and then think all that he has done for us. And then in a moment, I'll read a scripture and pray for us.